Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the sweet fellowship of believers, and especially today we are reminded of the fact that you have sent your Son Jesus into the world so that by believing in his name we can have fellowship with you and with one another. And even gathering together and catching up and talking is so much of a part of that, and we thank you for the blessing and the kindness of you, our Heavenly Father, in all of these things. Pray that even now, Lord, as we fellowship around your word and we reflect upon some truths that have implications for the way that we live on this earth and for eternity, that we would be people who would be attentive to your truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. So appropriate that in our current study in the book of Titus, we would land here, uh, especially in the light of uh, what we're celebrating this weekend, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we are staying in Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7 is our text for this morning. And the Word of God says this, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Title of this morning's message is What the Resurrection of Jesus Christ Accomplished. There are memories you never forget as a child. Now, for me, one of those memories was seeing my Christian aunt uh, as a kid and then as a youth talk to people about Jesus and witness to them. She was a very zealous evangelist. And often, uh, without miss, whenever she would encounter a person, who was wearing a necklace with a cross on it, she would particularly engage with that person, using that as an opportunity to talk to them about Christ. And I remember one time in particular, uh, we were at Ralph's Market, and a a lady in front of her was wearing a cross necklace. And after making a friendly comment to the lady and some small talk and asking her how she was doing and all of that, my Christian aunt asked this lady, well, hey, let me ask you a question. Why do you wear that cross? And the lady, somewhat bewildered and taken back by the forthrightness of my aunt's question, answered, because it brings me good luck. Not a good answer for a zealous evangelistic aunt, as you can imagine. So trying to keep her emotions in check, my aunt says to this lady with a friendly smile, at least she tried to be friendly at that moment, Oh, that's nice. But do you realize, she got even more forthright, do you realize that Jesus is Savior of your sins? And furthermore, not only that, but He is no longer on that cross, she said. And the lady was kind of taken back by that forthrightness. He is risen. He is alive, she told her. And I stood there, and that was a huge testimony to me of my Christian aunt's perspective about the way that she lived in the light of Jesus's resurrection. And beloved, this morning we can say the same thing, right? Jesus is risen. 
He is alive. That's one of the, that's the greatest distinguishing marks of biblical Christianity. That Jesus is alive. We have a living Lord, a living Savior, not a dead one. Muhammad isn't alive. Neither do his followers claim that he is. Buddha isn't alive. Joseph Smith is not alive. The great philosophers of human history and the great thinkers of human history, their ideas may be alive, but ultimately they're dead without Christ, those ideas. But those individuals are dead. They're dead. They're not alive. Only we who are Christians can, can say that we worship and we serve a king and we proclaim a king who is exalted, alive, risen. Only Christians can do that. And so on Friday night, we reflected on Jesus' atoning death, if you were here. But today, we have the, the distinct privilege of, of celebrating and relishing the fact that our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, is alive. And that because of His glorious resurrection and His ascension, He has made salvation possible. He's made salvation possible. And the text that we just read, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, it is this salvation that is the focus of this great passage of Scripture. This is one of the most dense passages in all of the Bible on salvation. In fact, you might say that the book of Titus, the great theme in the book of Titus, if you take Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, as we have over our study in Titus, as the theme passage, we might say that, that salvation is the great theme in the whole book of Titus. Salvation. What God has accomplished in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we live godly lives before a lost world for the sake of them seeing something of Christ in us, as we are expressions of Christ in this world. So salvation is the major theme of this book. Now I realize that most resurrection messages that maybe you've heard, and frankly I've preached a number of them, most of those messages were probably very focused on proving the fact of Jesus' resurrection and giving you proofs that Jesus indeed rose again. But this morning is different. Our focus will be different. Our, our passage is focused on what the resurrection of Jesus accomplished, namely our salvation. And we want to look at that great reality because it's got implications for us who are here. Every single one of us, there are implications for what we are going to look at for how we live life. And so we want to look at four reasons here why the resurrection is important with respect to our salvation. For some of you who are Christians sitting in here, these reasons will be both humbling and exhilarating at the same time. And a reason for us to celebrate. Because you know what? They remind us of the goodness of God that we've experienced. Of the fact that in Christ we have been forgiven. That in Christ we have been reconciled to our Maker so that we are able to live by the grace of God and by the strength of the Holy Spirit in a way that honors and glorifies God. And we have a future hope because of that. Now for others of you who are here this morning who have not believed in the Lord Jesus who are not following the Lord Jesus, who have not committed your life to Christ, my prayer is that you would not leave here today without making things right with God. My prayer today is that you would not leave without thinking deeply and pondering deeply and considering deeply the state of your soul in light of the resurrection of Christ. 
And I know that there are many of you in that position today. Or maybe this is one of those weeks of the year where you actually come to church and you hear preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Listen, today is a day when you can be made right with God by faith in this risen Christ. And you need to think deeply about these truths because the the truths that we're going to look at concerning Jesus' resurrection require a response from us. The great literary um, um, man, C.S. Lewis, once said that the claims of Jesus require a response from everyone. Either on the one hand, you, you don't believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is, who he claimed to be. You don't believe that he accomplished the atoning work that the Bible says he accomplished. You don't believe the witness of other people concerning Jesus Christ. Either you don't believe in Jesus, and so you ignore him, and you reject him, and you treat him as Muhammad, as another Joseph Smith, as another great teacher or prophet. You can go that direction. Or, if Jesus indeed is who the Bible says that he is, and if the Bible is true concerning his person and his work, including his resurrection, then Jesus must be trusted and embraced wholly and fully for salvation to the glory of God. It's only one of two responses to the claims of Christ that we're going to look at even here in the course of this sermon. And so here are four reasons why the resurrection is important with respect to our salvation. First, the resurrection is important because the resurrection reminds us of our desperate need for salvation. It reminds us of our desperate need for salvation. This is something that we glean from verse 3. We're on the heels of Paul instructing Titus about how believers are to conduct themselves in a lost, wicked world. Uh, For them, it was the island of Crete. For us, it's today, our present world. He says in verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Notice, he says in verse 3, for we also once, he's talking about his life and the lives of those believers and the lives of us as believers before coming to know Jesus Christ, before meeting Jesus in a saving way. And Paul includes himself as part of this in verse 3. He says, for we also once were foolish ourselves. Titus, you're in this thing. I'm in this thing. We're all in this thing together. Sin is a universal reality. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone falls into verse 3. Every single one of you sitting in this sanctuary this morning falls into verse 3. To some extent or another, we were disobedient and we are, some of us are walking in disobedience apart from Christ, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We spend our life in malice and envy, hateful, and we hate other people and we exploit other people. Sin is a universal reality. And it strikes me that Paul of all people would say something like this and include himself as part of the problem in verse 3. He says, we ourselves, because Paul was a a man who was committed to moralism at the highest level, wasn't he? Philippians chapter 3 outlines that. That Paul had great, great achievements from a human perspective in the law of God. He, more than anyone else, scrupulously followed the word of God and wanted to follow all of the ethical requirements of the God of Israel. 
And yet when he met Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I trusted in those things. I was trusting in that righteousness that was not the righteousness of Christ. Now I trust in the righteousness of Jesus. And my aim is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings to be conformed to Jesus' death. He says, all of those things that I was trusting in, all of my moralism that I was trusting in apart from Jesus Christ, he says, is nothing. It's trash. It's dung. It's worthless in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, my Savior. So he includes himself as part of this. And my point is that both the moral person, the moral man or woman, the moral kid, uh, boy or girl, the moral teenager is just as much a son of perdition as much as the explicit sinner, if you will. The person who sins and they don't care about what, how they break God's law. They don't care about how they hurt their creator and they don't glorify their creator. Both the explicit sinner who externally shows their sin and the moralist who trusts in his own works, apart from the righteousness of Christ, both of them are universally in sin and in desperate need of salvation. Both are. And so the resurrection reminds us that the problem of sin belongs to all of us. Each of us. Each of us are responsible. Each of us were or are by nature children of wrath. And we need salvation. And beloved, this has been a problem from the very beginning of human history. Remember Adam in Genesis chapter 3 and Eve? After Genesis 1 and 2 and and everything being pronounced good and very good. Do you remember what happens in Genesis 3? Adam falls, Eve falls, they fall into sin. They plunge humanity into sin. And God as a result of that curses them. And plunges humanity and all of the universe into a state of brokenness. And that's the state that we live in right now. We live in a broken world where everything is not the way that it should be. Amen? Things are not the way that they should be because we live in a broken world. And so then what we see after the fall and sin entered into the world is these genealogies, genealogy after genealogy with this vicious cycle of people are born, live, sin, die. Born, live, sin, die. Born, live, sin, die. Why? Because sin brings about death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 Sin brings death. And if you read through the Bible, that's what you see over and over and over again. After Adam, there were key players like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they had families and people that came from them. And all of them lived, sinned, died, and their offspring as well. A vicious cycle of sinning and of death coming to all of them. And then came the period of the judges and the kings where there were leaders Tribal leaders that arose and kings, human kings that arose. And you see the same vicious cycle. Leaders and kings rise, sin, die. Rise, sin, die. Why? Because sin brings about death. That's why. That's why. And then come the prophets in the Old Testament. Where God uses his human prophets to pronounce judgment upon his people because they are sinning and they are, they are not following his commandments and he pronounces judgment upon them because of that. And you see this vicious cycle where the prophets are even sinners themselves and all of the people that they're preaching to are in sin and in rebellion and all of them are going to die eventually as well and do. Why? Because sin brings about death. It is sickening, isn't it? 
It's this thread throughout the Bible, throughout especially the Old Testament, of God glorifying himself in the redemption of sinners by solving the, the problem that is universal of sin that leads to death. And yet through all of this hideous sin and rebellion by humanity, God was faithful, wasn't he? Even in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after God cursed man and creation, he cursed them in hope because he promised a seed. A seed would come from the woman in Genesis 3.15. Yes, the serpent, who is ultimately Satan, would bruise the seed of the woman on the heel, but the seed that would come forth from the woman, the ultimate, ultimately the Messiah Jesus, would crush the serpent's head, delivering a death blow to the serpent. The proto-evangelion. The first gospel we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And God announcing the, the hope of the seed that will come forth from the woman. Why? To solve the problem of sin that leads to death. Not only physical death in this life, but eternal separation from God, the creator of the universe. And so even as men sin and die, there is hope in the fulfillment of God's promises. That there will be a forever king who will bring glory to God and address the, the problem of universal sin in each of us. In each of us. So that when the New Testament opens, how glorious it is, isn't it? After 400 years of silence from the Old Testament into the New Testament and the Gospels, 400 years of silence we call them. There was the promise that there would be a Messiah that would come. That would solve the problem of sin. And indeed, in Matthew chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus is announced by the angel as the long-awaited one who will save his people from their sins. All in fulfillment of God's promises. In fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That there would be a forever king that would come from the line of David. From the tribe of Judah. Everything to the T, specifically where he would be born. What he would be like. Amazing. Jesus Christ comes into the scene in fulfillment of God's promises, in fulfillment of the new covenant, the inauguration of the new covenant. Jesus inaugurated this wonderful new covenant now where God's word is put into our hearts, specifically by virtue of the spirit of God coming and indwelling believers, Christians who trust in Jesus Christ. That is only possible, beloved, because Jesus came and he lived the perfect life and he died and he rose from the dead and he's exalted. So this desperate predicament, this need, is what Paul is describing here in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. And each of us have the deep need to be saved from sin's power. And sin's power is seen in death. And sin's penalty, which is eternal death. Eternal death. This deliverance and rescue from our sins, is what we celebrate and what we champion today, isn't it? What we have to glory in today. That's what we want to share with other people who don't know the Lord. Whether it's family members, or whether it's neighbors, or extended uh, uh, friends that we, we've known for many years. This is the time, beloved, to talk to them about the hope of Christ. To celebrate what Jesus has accomplished. Listen, I, I always appreciate people's positivity during Easter when they say things like, you know, we have much, we have so much to thank the Lord for today. Or on special occasions as believers. 
And then they named things like health and family and wealth and houses and happiness and favorable circumstances. Listen, all of those things are good for sure. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us that in everything we should give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. We should give thanks for all of those things. But listen to me, take it deeper, beloved. Take it deeper than that, especially on this day where we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die and rise so that we might have health, wealth, and prosperity, big houses, nice cars, easy circumstances, no trials. Amen? Some of you who've been walking with the Lord for a long time and are experiencing trials right now of a physical, social, relational, spiritual nature. Is it easy to live life as a believer here on earth? It's not. But it's worse to live life on this earth without the hope of Jesus, right? And without the comfort of the Holy Spirit, helping you live well under your trials and your sufferings. We understand that. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean an easier life, health, wealth, prosperity stuff. No. Jesus died and rose that he might definitively deal with sin and sin's consequences. Listen, and when we understand that, especially on days like today when we celebrate the resurrection then we realize that the riches that await us in light of, of Jesus' glorious resurrection are pale in comparison to anything that you are banking on this earth, or anything that we experience, rather, is what I mean to say, on this earth, pales in comparison to what awaits us in glory with Christ. It pales. Those things are nothing in comparison to that. There's things that burn on this earth. There's things that we shouldn't be banking on. It is about Christ and about the future with Christ and living well here on this earth for the glory of Christ, you see. And for this reason, may it not be that you are here this morning and that you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you don't address the deepest need that you have to be saved from your sins and be rescued from God's judgment. Oh, may it not be that. Nothing is more urgent this morning. Nothing is more important Nothing is more critical than the state of your soul. Nothing is. Where will you spend eternity? Past this earth. Maybe the Lord has blessed you with prosperity and wealth and you have good health and all of those things and you are happy and you're content. You don't have any need for Jesus. Listen to me. Those things are going to burn and you are being deceived into thinking that those things are things that you should live for. Listen to me. There is an afterlife. Where are you going to be past the, the, the moment where you die physically and then you're risen again unto judgment, which will be unto condemnation without Jesus, or to spend eternity with God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ? Where will you be? You need to consider that this morning. Since penalty is death... And what do, we, what do we celebrate on Resurrection Day? Jesus died and fully paid that penalty. What do we celebrate on Resurrection Day? That since power is seen in death ultimately, Jesus rose conquering sin and death. The glorious Christ. So why is the resurrection important? First of all, because it reminds us of our desperate need. Now, what the Bible tells us is that our need for salvation from our sin and God's judgment won't and can't come from you and I. It cannot. Why is the resurrection important, secondly? 
Because the resurrection reminds us of the fount or the source of our salvation. The resurrection reminds us of the fount or the source of our salvation. You know, I recall once visiting a group of very faithful gospel uh, preaching brothers in El Salvador, in a remote jungle area in El Salvador. And these brethren who were there had planted a handful of churches and were doing very faithful ministry. But one of the needs that arose in that, um, that region, in order to even minister to people with, with the gospel, was the, the need for clean water. Now, we take that for granted as, as Christians here in America, but in most places of the world, um, especially third world countries, beloved, people don't have clean water. So it leads to health issues, hygiene issues, and many other issues. And so these men, aided by U.S. funding, actually um, dug a well in the flatland in a very strategic central location so that both believers and unbelievers could come from the remote places in that region, and they were able to draw clean water out of that well. And as I talked to some of the pastors and saw some of what they were doing, in addition to preaching a faithful gospel, it was amazing. Some of them would say, listen, this becomes a picture for us for people who don't know Christ, to show them how, just as they are depending for, for this, for this, uh, in this well for, for, for uh, clean water, there is a greater, greater one, Jesus Christ, who is the living water. And when they partake of him, they will never be thirsty again. So they were using it as an opportunity to point people to the gospel of Christ, to the fact that people needed Christ. So see, that, that well became a sort of physical salvation or survival for these people because without clean water, they couldn't survive. Well, beloved, listen, with respect to salvation, the Bible tells us that the fount or the source of our salvation is God, right? God. He is the one that we come to for salvation. It doesn't originate in us. Don't we sing about that in that beautiful song? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Oh, we sing about it, don't we? We know that God is the fount or source of our salvation. This is something that we begin looking at on Friday night, the Good Friday service. But please note that God is the ultimate and final source or fount of our salvation. Look at verse 4. But when the kindness of who? Of God, our Savior. By the way, six times in the book of Titus, either God the Father or God the Son are referred to as our Savior. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared... And then verse 5, He saved us. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 7, it says that we are, so that being justified by His grace. The emphasis throughout the passage of our salvation is, is put in the hands of God. Of God. As the divine actor in salvation. As the one who acts this way, not out of compulsion or because someone is twisting his arm. Because somebody is, for, somebody is forcing him to act this way. But because of who he is in his divine, loving, kind, gracious, merciful character. He saves people because he is gracious. He saves people because he's kind. 
He saves people because he is good. He saves people because he loves. Listen, salvation has nothing to do with anything that you do. It originates in the heart of a kind, merciful, loving, gracious God. This is what distinguishes Christianity, biblical Christianity, from every other religion. In some way, shape, or form, if you dissect every religion or system of belief in the world, the worshiper or the person is told to do something, to offer something in order to be accepted before their deity of choice or entity of choice. Mark it. Go do some research on that. In some way, shape, or form. But biblical Christianity, the Bible says that there's nothing, nothing, nothing you can do to be accepted by God. To trust in your goodness or your good deeds is to build upon a false, faulty foundation. Is to build your life upon the sand rather than the rock, to use Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the song in Sunday school? The wise man built his house upon the rock. What did the foolish man do? He built his house upon the sand, didn't he? There's nothing we can do to earn God's salvation. Our works fall short. They're like filthy rags, says Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. All of our human achievements are worthless because God's standard, beloved, is perfection. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says this, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many of us can claim that? None of us can. We all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. We all fall short. This is made even more clear in our passage here. Look at verse 5. It says that God the Father saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Now listen, when he says deeds done in righteousness, he is putting works or deeds in the best possible light. He's saying even those deeds done in righteousness, that is with the goal of achieving favor with God, even those deeds are insufficient, inadequate, can earn you or merit you salvation before God. God is the fountain, the source of salvation. Not any of those works, done, even those works done in righteousness. This is why even moralism doesn't save If you trust in your goodness apart from the righteousness of Christ, you can't be saved. In the same way that the wicked, explicit sinner who doesn't care about how they live their life and what anybody thinks about them, they are equally on level playing field. They are both going to hell if they don't turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. It couldn't be clear. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. Not human effort, not your natural abilities, not your great intellect, not inherent goodness that you may claim, not even acts of service, not even your humanitarian efforts, not done for the glory of God and in Christ as a believer for the exaltation of Jesus can save you. None of those things can save you. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith in who? In Jesus For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works or deeds that no one should boast. No one can come come, get to to judgment day and say, Oh God, look at everything I did for you. Look at all the riches. Look at all the prosperity. Look at all the gadgets that I got. Look at all the houses. Even some mansions in the Burbank Hills. Look at everything that I have. And God is going to say, what did you do with my son, the risen Christ? Did you turn from your sins? Did you trust in him 
Of course, he doesn't have to ask that because he's going to already know that to end that day, right? Look at verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And then verse 7, we are justified by His grace, mercy and grace, two sides of the same beautiful coin. What's the difference? Have you ever asked yourself, what's the difference between mercy and grace in the Bible? Well, in mercy... God withholds the punishment that you justly reserve for your sin and your rebellion. He doesn't give you what you deserve, which is judgment and punishment for your sin. He withholds that punishment in mercy. In grace, God freely gives you His unmerited, undeserved favor, doesn't He? He gives you what you do not deserve. Namely, His favor and His blessing in grace. It is undeserved because you, you are not worthy of it. It is unmerited disgrace because you cannot work and you cannot earn it. You cannot earn it by your works. God's grace and mercy are starkly the opposite of our human graces that we show to each other, aren't they? What do we do as humans, generally speaking, in our natural state if we just let ourselves go? I'll tell you. We show mercy to people who deserve our mercy. We show, we, show, we show mercy to people who are worthy of our compassion, who are in difficult situations, therefore they deserve us to be merciful to them. We as human beings, in our, natural, our natural inclination is to show grace to people who deserve their, our favor, who've earned our respect, who've earned our blessing, who are on good terms with us. Then we're going to be gracious to them. Then we're going to be merciful to them. It's based upon performance, isn't it? For us as humans, if we're not careful, even as believers, we can live that way. But God's mercy and grace, beloved, is different. These wonderful graces and, and God's mercy are not based upon the worthiness or the inherent value of any of us. Just look at Roman, uh, at chapter 3, verse 3 again. This, this was you if you are a Christian, and this is you if you are currently not a Christian. This is all of us. Every single one of us falls into verse 3. We're not worthy of God's mercy. We're not worthy, worthy of God's grace. Listen, God loved us when we were unlovely and unwanted. Though we had forsaken and rejected Him, and we were not even mindful of Him. Though we committed mutiny against our Maker and failed continually to not live out our greatest grand purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him, He saved us. He stepped into our mess into our darkness, into our wickedness, didn't He? How did He do that? In the person of the Son, in the person of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He, what? Gave His only begotten Son. He expressed His love in action by sending His Son Jesus into the world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says this, But God... Being rich in mercy. And I love how Paul in, Roman, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 doesn't even have the language to express the wonderful attributes of God and point to His majesty that He starts piling words on top of each other. He says, but God, being rich in mercy. He's not just mercy. He is rich in mercy. Because of His great love with which He loved us. He's not just love. He is great. He loves with great kind of love. Even, listen, even when... And personalize this. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, even when you were breaking His law, He saved you. He made you alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ in order that in the ages to come he might show, listen to this, the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. <laughs> just, just grace and kindness. It's surpassing and rich in grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul wants to accentuate in multiple passages and other biblical authors the wonderful character of God, not because he has not, God has not expressed uh, or reconciled us to himself because of our performance, beloved, but because of who he is, of his wonderful, glorious character. He's glorious and merciful. He is the founder source of our salvation. He said, if you are not a believer this morning, you haven't committed your life to Christ, do you recognize that each one of us here this morning Even you are recipients of God's grace and mercy every single day, every moment of your life. Let me ask you this. Do you not live in God's world? Do you not walk on His land that He owns? Do you not breathe His oxygen? Do you not not daily eat His food, drink His water, Enjoy His goodness in multiple ways that we can spend the whole day going through them and rehearsing them. Every single day, God keeps you alive. Every heartbeat, every breath, from the moment that you are conscious of yourself overnight, God is the one who is giving you that life. He's merciful to you. He is gracious to you. That's what we call God's common grace. He commonly gives, He he is gracious to all of His creatures and all of His creation. But then there is saving grace. Because the greatest way that God has shown us is mercy and grace, if we will receive it, it's in what Christ has done on the cross and the resurrection. Saving grace. Jesus dying on the cross in the place of sinners as our sin bearer, satisfying God's justice on our behalf, rising from the dead, conquering sin and death, is the reason why God can show mercy and grace to you and I. Because as we learned Friday night, What happens in salvation, specifically in the doctrine of justification? Double imputation, right? Our sin, on the one hand, is placed upon the blameless, spotless Lamb of God. And His righteousness, on the other hand, is placed upon us like clothing. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ when we come to know the Lord. We are not actually righteous. It's God treats us, considers us, reckons us righteous as if we are are adopted through His Son. That's how God can be merciful to us. He doesn't sweep his sin under the rug. He doesn't diminish its importance or its severity or its seriousness. Listen, if you are here this this morning and you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to understand that God is not going to sweep your sin under the rug. He has punished his son on the cross for your sins, your specific sins, individual sins, and comprehensively. All of those sins have been poured out upon Jesus so that you, by believing in Jesus Christ alone, from the heart, genuinely being broken over your sin, can receive salvation and forgiveness and reconciliation because Jesus paid the price that you don't have to pay anymore. What grace, what mercy, isn't it? See, some of us have received that free gift of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. We celebrate and marvel at it today. Others of you need to realize this. If you have not committed your life to Jesus Christ, realize this and hear me clearly. 
God is gracious and merciful commonly to everyone, including you who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. But one day his mercy toward you will expire. And that is not because he's going to cease to be gracious and merciful, but because God, who is patient and slow, he wants to see you saved, but ultimately he's going to fulfill his promises in and through his son. And part of that is judging the world through this one that he has appointed his risen son for those who have not believed in him. And you will be condemned to eternal suffering in hell. Why? Why? Because... Pastor, I've committed great sins. You don't even know what's going on in my mind and the types of things that have happened to me in my thinking and my lifestyle and all of that. There's no way that God can forgive me. Listen to me. God can forgive any sin. Even murder, He can forgive. Even that, He forgives in Jesus Christ. And the reason why ultimately one day God will reject you is not because there are unforgivable sins that Jesus didn't pay for and God won't forgive you for, but because you have rejected God's risen son. That is the unpardonable sin right there. To not trust in the risen, exalted Christ. So what does God require of you? Listen to the words of Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God, specifically speaking of God the Father, is now declaring to men that all people, all of us would fall into this, past, present, and future, that all people everywhere should repent. That means to turn away from your sinful lifestyle. Turn, repent, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man with a capital M, namely Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This God the Father, by virtue of the resurrection, has proven that Jesus is his son and the only sin bearer and substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And so what is the response for every single one of us? We are personally responsible for what we do with the risen, exalted Jesus that we've heard about. He requires repentance from you. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus alone. Romans 2, 4 says, It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It is His kindness. If you think of anything of the, about the cross and the resurrection of Christ this weekend, think about the kindness of God being shown in His Son and the love of God being shown in His Son. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? Does that drive you to want to turn from your sin? Does that evoke in you a, a desire to abandon your sin and, and trust in the Lord to deliver you from the power of sin in your life? Trust in Him to follow Christ? Will you bow in judgment someday in the future, in eternity, or will you bow to the king in response to his love now? Which one will it be? Why is the resurrection important? Because it addresses our desperate need for salvation from our sin and sin's punishment. Because it reminds us of the fount or the source of our salvation, namely a gracious, loving, kind God, a merciful God. Thirdly, because it paved the way for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Because Jesus' resurrection paved the way for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And I, I love the Trinitarian focus of this passage here. All three persons of the Godhead appear. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All actively involved in our salvation. 
God the Father plans salvation. The Son comes to fulfill His plan of salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies salvation in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners. Jesus told His followers that after rising from the dead, that the Holy Spirit would come, right? And what do we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, that after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit, the, the followers of Jesus are waiting and praying and awaiting the Holy Spirit's arrival as Jesus had instructed them. And boy, does the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 arrive, doesn't he? In power, in power. And the apostles and others begin to preach the gospel message concerning Jesus Christ and the hope of, the, 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 the hope of, of, of mankind being only in the risen, exalted Jesus. And, the, and then the Holy Spirit begins to apply that message of the gospel to the hearts of spiritually dead sinners. Well, Jesus' resurrection and ascension ushered in that ministry, that unique ministry that we experience from the Holy Spirit even in the, in the present. And so Paul is highlighting in verse 5 the, the whole work of God in salvation through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5. He says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He's talking about the Spirit being poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Meaning that the Holy Spirit only comes and indwells permanently believers through Jesus Christ as our Savior. So verse 5 is highlighting the work of the Spirit by these two beautiful words, regeneration and renewing. Regeneration, very quickly, simply has to do with the, the supernatural act of the Holy Spirit by which the Holy Spirit has cleansed us from our sins and He's caused us to be born again. We've entered a new life in Christ, grafted into the body of Christ, the church, made up of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. A new birth. When we talk about being born again, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of regeneration. And then renewing of the Holy Spirit points to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, where now as we live in this new life in Christ, we are daily being renewed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, all by the work of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection and ascension of Christ made that possible, didn't it? For Him to come in this way. This is why the Spirit is called our, our parakletos, the one who has, is called alongside of us to assist us to support us, to encourage us, to comfort us, to help us, to convict us, to exhort us when we are in sin, to cause us to grieve for our sin. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit is the, is the seal of God's promise of inheritance to us. Verse 14 of Ephesians 1, He is given as a pledge, as a down payment of God's inheritance. Listen, the Holy Spirit indwelling us as Christians is God's guarantee and assurance that we who have trusted in Christ will inherit His promises. We can never lose our salvation. Never. Salvation cannot be lost because it is not in our hands from beginning to end. It is protected by the power of God. It's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is protected. If we can lose our salvation, then God is not mighty to save and if we can lose our salvation, we, could lose, we would lose it every single day because every single day we fall short of God's perfect righteousness, don't we? Jesus' resurrection made this ministry of the Holy Spirit possible. 
He spoke of it in the upper room in John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18. And the central mission of the Holy Spirit, listen, is not to bring attention to Himself, but the, the Spirit's mission is to bring attention and lift up high Christ's person, death, resurrection, and exaltation. Any other manifestations of the Spirit, if I can put it this way, with some of the popular so-called preachers of today that exalt the work of the Spirit, quote-unquote, listen to me, if the Holy Spirit in that preaching is not lifting up the person and the work of Jesus Christ, Christ, then it's a foreign spirit they're talking about. Not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's mission, do a survey of the book of Acts, is to lift up the Son and exalt the Son so that people who are spiritually dead can see the beauty of the Son and abandon their wicked ways and follow Jesus because He is King and He's exalted. That's the mission of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection and the ascension made that mission or or uh, propel that mission for the holy spirit to come and have that ministry amongst us take comfort this morning as god's child take comfort this morning that the holy spirit resides in you because of the resurrection that he equips you daily for the christian life why is the resurrection important because it addresses our desperate need because it reminds us of the fountain or the source of our salvation because it's paved the way for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And fourth, because it secures for us eternal life. Because it secures for us eternal life with respect to our salvation. Look at verse 7. All of these things, so that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That last phrase or to the hope of eternal life. Literally, the hope which consists of eternal life would be a good translation. The hope which is eternal life. Eternal life is our hope. And have you ever asked yourself, what is eternal life? What really does it consist of? Because we often think of eternal life as, as just an endless amount of time, quantity of time. But eternal life is both quantity and quality of time, isn't it? Both. Quantity of time or, or of life... In that in Christ, though we will die, we will one day live in, with our, in our union with Jesus Christ. If Jesus, is gonna, if Jesus has risen, we will rise with him someday as well. So, quantity of, of, of life. But it's also quality of life. Quality of life. Beginning in the here and now, how so? How do we experience quality of life, eternal life indeed, in the here and now, in the midst of all of the suffering and all of the affliction that we experience in, this, in the face of all of the injustice, all of the problems, all of the human oppression? How do we experience eternal life in the here and now? John seventeen three says this, And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent how does a person begin to experience eternal life in the present in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation beloved in this way in that when we trust in christ and we're reconciled to god we enter into a living loving relationship with god our father through jesus christ and i would a thousand times a million in infinity rather live this life in a relationship with God my Father so that I can go to Him moment by moment every single day and find comfort in Him and find strengthening in Him and His grace every single day. Amen? Every single day, I would rather have that. As that precious song says, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. You like this one, Hajin. Huh, it's one of my all-time favorites. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. 
Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, oh, oh, he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Right? We experience a foretaste of eternal life in the present, in the midst of our suffering in Jesus Christ. So the privilege and the blessing of knowing God is the very beginning foretaste of eternal life in the here and now. Those who don't know God are deceived or they are hopeless and helpless in the midst of a broken world. And they're wondering right now in the midst of all that's going on in our world and in America in particular, where this is hopeless, it's helpless. Oh my gosh, there's nothing that we can do. For we as Christians, we have gospel lenses, don't we? Because Jesus is risen and he's exalted, we can process through all of that in a different way, in a way that honors the Lord. Think about that. And you can't come to know God and experience a foretaste of eternal life except through Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 11, And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Please note, it is only through Jesus alone, by virtue of His death and resurrection, that you can have eternal life. Only through Jesus Christ. It's an exclusive call. So listen to me. You can't have Jesus and claim merits based upon your works in a saving way. You can't want Jesus and trust in your own goodness. You can't want Jesus and your intellect. You can't want Jesus and trust in your external religion devoid of heart for God. You cannot want to have Jesus on one hand, hold Him in a saving way, and hold on to your sin. You must have a willingness in your heart that is spirit-wrought to forget, to forsake your sin, to turn from your sin, and to see God's power manifested in God delivering you from your sin. You can't have Jesus and your sin. Those of you who claim to know Christ this morning and you're living in sin, in unrepentant sin, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about living in unrepentant patterns of sin where you know it and maybe even nobody else does, but God knows it. How can you live that way? You can't have Jesus on the one hand and claim to love and and to follow Jesus and on the other hand want to have your closet sins that you don't want to repent of. Oh, my friend, you better be careful with that. You better examine yourself, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. You can't have Jesus in addition to other saviors. Other gods with a little g, as if Jesus is some add-on to, you you add him to Muhammad, or you add him to Joseph Smith, or to the greatest philosophers of the day. You can have Jesus and all of these other guys. Listen to me, there's only one way, truth, and life, and that is Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says there is salvation in no one else. No one means no one in the Greek. I'm telling you, I've studied it. No one means no one. There's no other interpretation. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. What name is that? The name of Christ. His person and His work, which includes His perfect life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation, and soon return. So my hope and prayer is that you would not leave today if you have not trusted in Christ without making things right with God through Jesus Christ. That's my desire and my hope and my plea with you. My plea with you. Jesus died and rose from the dead to deliver sinners such as you and I from the power of sin, which is death. Jesus died to deliver sinners like you and I from the penalty of sin, which is death, here and for eternity. Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin and death on our behalf. 
so that we don't have to suffer the punishment, so that we don't have to live under the power of sin. And for those of us who have believed in Christ, what a day of celebration and of relishing in the glorious victory in Christ. Amen? We are sons through Christ. We are adopted into God's family. That though our sin's penalty is death, Jesus has fully paid for our sins on the cross, beloved. Relish in that. That though sin's great power is demonstrated in death, Jesus rose from the dead conquering sin and death. These are truths that the believer can bank on and we can live victoriously and in the light of them. Amen? And live victoriously in the light of them. I leave you with the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a great text where Paul defends the resurrection of Christ and that because Christ has indeed risen, everyone who is in Christ will rise from the dead as well. And then 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55 says this, O death, where is your victory? It's mocking death like a bee without a stinger. O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, therefore, in the light of Jesus' resurrection indeed, in the light of the, the fact that all of those who have put their faith in Jesus will rise from the dead as well. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, in the light of that, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord with what kind of knowledge? Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Listen to me, because Jesus is risen and exalted and he's returning. It is all worth it. The battle against sin is worth it in your life. The battle for holiness by the grace of God is worth it. Your service to Christ is worth it. Your efforts are worth it because of Christ. Without Christ, you're right. This life stinks and I want to go somewhere else. But with Jesus, because Jesus is risen and exalted, it is all worth it, isn't it? So if you're discouraged by life's circumstances, by relational difficulties, social difficulties, if you're disheartened this morning by spiritual or physical trials or suffering, if you are tired and weary and you're wondering, is my service worth it? And it seems it's not reciprocated and things are not coming back in this direction. Listen to me. Because Jesus is risen, ascended, exalted. He is returning and it is all worth it, beloved. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what glorious truths. What glorious truths. And they are all possible because of you. You have done all of this, Lord. May all the glory and the praise and the adoration be to you, our Heavenly Father. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, into the world to save sinners such as us. And I pray, Father, if there are those who are sitting here this morning who are convicted and pricked by your Holy Spirit, that, Father, they would not leave here today without making things right with you, Lord. May they not be in a service where we celebrate the risen Christ who is able to give them, Lord, power over sin. And Lord, who has paid for the penalty that sinners deserve for their sin and rebellion. And Lord, they walk away not thinking anything about this. Oh, Lord, please let not that be the case. We ask you all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.